You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in April 2018. And you might remember this as the Questions for Corbett podcast, where you send in the questions and I try to provide some answers. Well, I say you might remember because it has been several months since the last edition of this monthly question mark podcast series, more on which in a moment. But first, as is my want, I'll let you know the different ways that you can get your questions in for the next edition of this series. Of course, the best way, if you are a Corporate Report member, please log into the website and leave your question directly in the comments for this post on CorbettReport.com. Specifically, this is Questions for Corbett, episode 39, so leave your question there and I'll try to get to it next time. Uh, otherwise, you can contact me through the u- usual methods, including the contact form on CorbettReport.com, where you can either leave a text message or you can record your voice and potentially appear as a voice on the next edition of this series. And I used to say you could tweet me, but not anymore, so <laughs> that's no longer an option. <laughs> but at any rate, you can still get your questions in for the next edition of this series, and I'm always uh, interested to hear your questions. And oh, of course, you can always record a video and leave uh, your video question on a video sharing platform of your choosing and just let me know it's there so that I can peruse it for next time. So having said that, as is my want here on this series, I'm going to start off by suggesting that you check out the comments and questions from the last edition of this podcast, specifically questions for Corbett number 38 on CorbettReport.com, where we were looking at the question of who is Nicholas Rockefeller. And in that regard, I will highly recommend the work of a couple of Corbett Report members who did some deep digging on this matter and came up with some interesting uh, responses and and questions of their own and some answers given some more resources. Uh, Specifically, uh, was it Mielia? Uh, I believe that might be how you pronounce that, and Manuel, both of whom did some yeoman's work in digging out some more uh, pieces of that puzzle on the Nicholas Rockefeller question, and it still seems pretty definitive to me that if uh, if he is uh, an actual Rockefeller relation, he's certainly not part of the John D. Main family line and is a distant relation at best to David and the other the kingpins of that family. So um, probably trading on the Rockefeller name to a certain extent. Um, that seems to be where we've arrived at with uh, the different threads that have been dug up by the Corp Report members. But uh, again, I invite you to take a look at those directly for yourself in the comments for the last edition of this series. We'll have a couple of questions from the members later on in today's edition of the podcast, but I think we should start out by addressing the elephant in the room. So uh, coincidentally, and and, uh, maybe not coincidentally, but at least appropriately enough, I got a a question in recently from Andy, uh, simply, why aren't you doing questions for Corbett anymore? (laughs) That's a good question for Corbett. And uh, there's no definitive answer to this. There's no there's no satisfying answer other than to say, I just didn't, I wasn't feeling it. Uh, this is a series where sometimes the questions are popping and they're getting me excited and I'm digging stuff up. And then other times there's stretches where it just seems that a lot of the questions are kind of samey, that I've not only seen them hundreds of times before, but answered them in the past. Even the kind of off-the-wall zany questions that come in, I 
I've answered most of those before in the past as well. For example, I had a question in from uh, by email from Mohammed recently. Dear James, if you're in Japan, does that mean you love anime? Um, I get these kinds of questions a lot. And again, this is the type of lighthearted, kind of easygoing question that I might answer as a little uh, com- comedic relief or change of pace during one of these episodes. But actually, I've answered that before in the past. And I'm not going to dig out the specific reference because that would be a lot of work for probably little reward but I did talk about this at one point during one of my questions and answers talking about why are you in Japan and I I did answer that uh, most people uh, most western white males come to Japan because they're interested in anime or video games or Japanese girls and I'm not interested in anime or video games and in fact never got into it Uh, I liked um, I liked that one Uh, Cowboy Bebop was a good series but (laughs) other than that I just I I don't know. It's just not my style. I'm not interested in it. Anyway, so I have answered that in the past. Um, And here's another example. Actually, this uh, this question coming in uh, via email from Ethan. After a good think, I have finally found a question that I don't believe I have heard your answer. Forgive me, but you have answered a lot, which makes asking fresh ones progressively more difficult. Yes, indeed. Uh, What is your opinion about the alleged Three World Wars letter from Albert Pike to Giuseppe Mazzini in 1871? Forged, real, or imagined? And if forged, how is it so close to real events some 150 years later? Thank you very much for the question, Ethan, but you're exactly right. It is getting progressively more difficult to find any topic that I haven't addressed somewhere in my now 11-year archives of doing the Corbett Report, including specifically my take on the Pike letter to Mazzini. Now, we could bring in things like, and I think we should at least mention it, um, Albert Pike's letter to Mazzini back in 1781, or sorry, 1871, uh, quote, The Third World War must be fomented by taking advantage of the differences caused by the agentur of the Illuminati between the political Zionists and the leaders of the Islamic world. The war must be conducted in such a way that Islam, the Muslim Arabic world, and uh, political Zionism, the state of Israel, mutually destroy each other. Meanwhile, the other nations, once more divided on the issue, will be constrained to fight to the point of complete physical, moral, spiritual, and economical exhaustion. We shall unleash the nihilists and the atheists, and we shall provoke a formidable <laughs> social cataclysm which in all its horror will show clearly to the nations the effect of absolute atheism, origin of savagery, and of the m- most bloody turmoil. Then everywhere the citizens, obliged to defend themselves against the world minority of revolutionaries, will exterminate those destroyers of civilization and the multitude disillusioned with Christianity whose deistic spirits from that moment the uh, be without compass or direction anxious for an ideal but without knowing where, whether where to render its adoration will receive the true light through the universal manifestation of the pure doctrine of Lucifer brought finally out <laughs> in the public view the manifestation will this manifestation will result from the general reactionary movement which will follow the destruction of Christianity and atheism both conquered and exterminated at the same time end quote Nailed this it. is a much quoted <laughs> letter again supposedly written in 1871 there are all sorts of questions about this letter in all sorts of different ways, but my point would be I'll believe it when I actually see it. <laughs> I don't believe this letter exists. Um, and I don't believe anything that w- what it's talking about. But at the very least, the idea that such a conflict could be created as a springboard towards a greater agenda is mm. one that I think needs to be taken seriously. So, 
There you go. Yep. Answered. <laughs> so thank you for the attempt, Ethan. And it was a valiant attempt, but I have actually addressed that in the past. I'll throw the link into that full conversation from the Beard World Order now over five years ago, I think, at this point. Um, so the, the answers are generally there in the archive for a lot of questions. Let's put it that way. But... You're in luck. I'm feeling particularly answery today. So let's get to work. I'll roll up my sleeves and see if we can get some uh, interesting questions and answers rolling for you here. Let's start opening the mailbag with a question from Lola, who writes, The state of our failed slash failing banking system is horrendous. I am curious about what other alternative banking options are out there. Is there information that can be shared? Thank you for the extremely important question, Lola. You're all right. This is a very, very important topic and one that I've covered many, many times in the past. So I'll just throw in some links to some of my main attempts at answering this question, perhaps most notably a subscriber editorial that I did a couple of years ago, uh, How to Beat the Banksters at Their Own Game. I think an important look at some of the options that exist out there. Also, uh, interview 928, which was made into a Corbett Report Extras by uh, video editor Brock West. Uh, James Corbett discusses voluntary solutions to ending the Fed. Uh, I did a Corbett Report Radio 169 with Ale Herzog um, back several years ago now, the Alternative Currency Solution, where we talked about some of the different ideas for getting off of the monetary paradigm that we find ourselves in. And on that note, I did a GRTV report several years ago called Complementary Currencies, A Beginner's Guide that might be handy in that regard. And uh, you might remember last year I had a kind of question for Corbett or a challenge for Corbett from... Uh, um, Ah, yes, Jerry Day, of course, Jerry Day, a freedom taker. So um, uh, he was asking about uh, ways to end the Fed. What is your actual solution? So I uh, posted, think you know how to end the Fed? Take the Fed challenge, where I put forward one idea that I find particularly intriguing and invited people to participate in the open uh, source uh, conversation about what are some other ideas. So those are just a few of the cookie crumbs along this tra trail. As I say, this is a topic that I keep coming back to because it is still extremely important. And I hope that those cookie crumbs will help you on your trail of discovery for yourself. So thank you very much for the important question, Lola. And let's move on. Let's uh, go on to the next question. Again, from the mailbag, we get a question from Marcel, who writes uh, regarding the Indian government cutting royalties paid to Monsanto by seed companies. I find that interesting as I'm no fan of Monsanto and what it seems to be doing. I'd love to hear your take. Okay, thank you, Marcel. And for those who are not in the know, um, Marcel is specifically referring to uh, an article. We'll take this particular article from RT, but um, it's all over the news. India slashes Monsanto's GMO seed royalty, says U.S. firm free to leave any time, which is a, a, a pretty dramatic escalation in rhetoric if you haven't really been following the rhetoric. And that's the point of this. This is actually not really just suddenly out of nowhere India turning against Monsanto. This is part of a long-running battle that has been taking place um, between India and Monsanto or between GM technology in India uh, in the broader sense for several years. And we can go back several years. We can go back to 2012 when an expert panel uh, that was appointed by the Supreme Court to look into the issue actually recommended a 10-year moratorium on GM food crop trials in India. And there's been some back and forth battles over that idea. Um, you can talk about, of course, in relation to the Indian uh, farmer suicide epidemic that has killed hundreds of thousands or taken hundreds of thousands of lives in India that has been linked back to Monsanto and their uh, trading practices um, by a number of researchers. To be fair, there are industry-sponsored groups that uh, have 
kicked back against that, and I'll throw a link or two in the show notes in so you can read more about that issue, but I've talked about that before, for example, in episode 299 on Solutions Guerrilla Gardening. Um, and we can look to important anti-GM voices uh, like Vandana Shiva, of course, uh, from India, who has I, I featured, for example, in my GRTV report on open seeds, bio, biopiracy, and the patenting of life. So this... This latest move, which is to decrease the amount of royalties that seed companies are going to be in India are going to be paying to Monsanto, is not out of nowhere. This is not something suddenly, as if India is just now um, trying to reject or f- kick back against this technology and against Monsanto in particular. Um, there are commentaries that talk about this. Well, is this part of uh, you know trade war negotiation? Is this about uh, kicking back against? the new Trump uh, tariffs on steel and and other things that might affect the Indian economy, blah, blah, blah. So there are people speculating about that, but I think it's more important to place this in the context of the fact that India has been fighting against uh, GM and Monsanto for a number of years, and there is a very strong contingent of the anti-GM movement uh, is from India. So this is a story that I understand is probably going to slip under the radar for a lot of people, given all the other geopolitical pyrotechnics taking place on the chessboard right now. But I think it's an extremely important one. Obviously, the issue of GM crops and GM technology continues to be extremely important to the health of the uh, the planet, of everyone on the planet, and, and wildlife and everything else. So I hope people do take uh, this issue seriously and, and take a look at these latest moves and I'm interested in this so uh, if anyone has any updates or anything that they think uh, that I need to see in regards to this issue please do keep me updated let's move on to the next question this one coming in from Henry I am currently trying to figure out when exactly Bin Laden died I have read the conclusions of Dr. Steve Bachenik that he already died in December 2001 claiming that the raid by Navy SEALs in May 2011 was a hoax that never happened I came across a book called The Flight of OBL, published in May 2017, giving many details about Osama's women and children, their flight to Iran, which also sounded very interesting and revealing. The conclusions of observers like David Ray Griffin and Steve Bachenik were based on the kidney failure of Osama that made it impossible to survive for so many years without proper treatment. So who is telling the truth, and what uh, advice can you give me what I should publish in the book I am writing, both visions without a definitive answer, perhaps? All right, thank you for the question. And yes, it's a very good question. You set it up well. There are certainly competing narratives about what did or did not happen in May 2011 and before then in regards to the life and or death of Osama bin Laden. And uh, long story short, the, the first thing to say is we will probably never have the definitive answer on this. Um, just given the, 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 the access or lack of access uh, to direct evidence that the public has and was ever likely to have with regards to these details, I don't know if we'll ever have the definitive answer to this. But I stand by the assessment that I made at that time and continue to make uh, to the present day, namely that the 2011 death of Osama bin Laden was not the first time that such a death had been announced, but the ninth. And there is no reason that we should take the ninth pronouncement any more seriously than we should take any of the preceding eight announcements. According to you and another number of analysts, bin Laden has been dead for quite some time already. If that were true, why would the U.S. wait till now to announce his death? Well, first, let me uh, correct you. I'm not in uh, New York. I'm actually in Japan. But, oh, um, but, 
uh, it's not my contention that that Osama bin Laden def def definitively has been dead for some time, but that he has been, his death has been announced a number of times at any rate, and uh, and I don't see why we should take this uh, this pronouncement any more seriously than any of the previous pronouncements, especially considering the complete and utter lack of evidence that has so far been produced to show that Osama bin Laden or anyone resembling that description was actually killed yesterday. But I think it's important to understand the announcement that occurred yesterday, not through the lens of the announcement of the death of some terrorist mastermind so much as the uh, retirement party for a known CIA asset along the lines of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald back in November 1963. And I think uh, Lee Harvey Oswald is probably the best analog for Osama bin Laden as someone who did not have the means, motive or opportunity to do what he allegedly did, not only killing President Kennedy, but also waltzing in and out of the Soviet Union at the height of the Cold War after having been working at the uh, top secret Atsugi Air Force Base uh, with no questions asked using money that he didn't have at the time. In the same way, we see Osama bin Laden being the, the rogue element of the bin Laden family of uh, construction fortune, who, of course, has deep ties to the oligarchy of Texas and, of course, the Bush family. So uh, we see uh, Osama bin Laden, of course, having deep ties to the American intelligence establishment. So I see this more as a ploy of uh, the CIA getting rid of one of their old assets, whether he actually did die yesterday or he's been dead for years or whatever the case may be. This is simply uh, discarding a war on terror boogeyman who's no longer scaring the populace. So for those who don't know the details about Osama bin Laden being pronounced dead for the ninth time uh, in May 2011, I will include a report to my uh, article at the time, um, Osama bin Laden pronounced dead for the ninth time, uh, where the argument is, uh, to be clear, I am not saying that uh, as I have been misquoted, I think intentionally so, by some of my critics in the past, that uh, that any of these previous declarations were definitive and that I believe he died in 2001 or I believe he didn't die at all. Uh, the point of that entire article is to say, look, here are all the documented times where various public officials have said uh, definitively and or speculatively that Osama bin Laden's uh, long dead. Let's stop worrying about him. Um, and... This was just another one of those series of pronouncements, as far as I was concerned, um, at that time, given what we knew or didn't know more accurately about the details of that raid. So, um, I mean, for example, there was the December 2001 report, which even Fox News posted from the Pakistan Observer, saying that the Afghan Taliban had officially pronounced OBL dead. Um, January 2002, President, Pakistani President Musharraf at that time uh, said quite bluntly that I think now, frankly, he is dead. Um, FBI counterterrorism chief uh, in July 2002, Dale Watson, said that he uh, believed that uh, bin Laden was dead. October 2002, Afghan President Hamid Karzai said that he'd, uh, I would come to believe that bin Laden's probably dead. Uh, over and over, these types of pronouncements have been made. And any one of them, certainly you could question. You could say, well, of course, Musharraf or Karzai would have an interest in saying that he's dead and gone and stop attacking our country. Osama bin Laden's gone. So, of course, they'd say that. And maybe that's true. Of course, they would say that. And were they working on definitive intel or just speculation or were they just trying to cover their own butts or whatever? Um, yeah, of course. But then the, all of those same questions, I think, can and should be applied in uh, the case of what did or didn't happen in Abbottabad in 2011. So, of course, we now know, of course, it was a positive identification by DNA. I mean, you couldn't get better than that. This is absolute ironclad, bulletproof. How could this possibly be wrong? Uh, DNA evidence that Osama bin Laden was the, the person they killed, right? And we know this. Not from 
the CIA or from the Pentagon or from any direct source because the AP did unsuccessfully try and sue for that information. They tried to FOIA it out, but the government said uh, they wouldn't respond to any such request. Well, we found it in a in a roundabout way, as The Independent reported uh, in 2013, August of 2013, leaked Snowden docs show for the first time that DNA test verified identity of Osama bin Laden's body. Quote, a secret laboratory ran DNA tests on Osama bin Laden's body after he was killed by a Navy SEALs commando team. Classified U.S. defense documents leaked by Edward Snowden have revealed. The Pentagon has previously denied that it had any re- record of such tests and reportedly handled all its information on the bin Laden operation to the CIA, where they were less likely to be made visible to the public. But former National Security Agency contractor Edward Snowden has now gone to the press with secret budget files held by the Defense Intelligence Agency, which shows that forensic tests took place and provided a conclusive match on the terrorist's leader leader's identity. And skipping on in the article, the Associated Press said they had submitted Freedom of Information requests asking for these data the day after bin Laden was announced, a death was announced. But almost a year later, in March 2012, they were told the Pentagon could not locate any of the files, end quote. Well, there you go. Problem solved. This this uh, journalistic problem of, well, they say there's a DNA test, but we have no proof for it and they won't give us any. Uh, but don't worry, Snowden's here with the documents. Look, in this budget for the Defense Intelligence Agency, this budget proves there was a DNA test and it was a conclusive match. Well, <laughs> what more evidence do we need, guys? <laughs> I mean, certainly nothing that's, that's in any way accessible, observable, or verifiable by the outside public. Certainly nothing open source. Just this, hey, guys, here's a budget document that says we did a test and that it proved it was Osama. Well, case closed, right? Um, And for anyone who wonders, how could it possibly be, James, that Snowden was a psyop? He must be pure as the driven snow. Well, again, regardless of whether he's aware of it or not, he could be passing on dupe information uh, that's convenient for the people who are like, oh no, oh, he's leaked all our secrets, like how we secretly tested the DNA of Osama bin Laden, right? Hmm. Uh, Yeah, take that for what it's worth. But the most interesting aspect of the whole we tested his DNA cover story was the whole story about the fake vaccination drive that supposedly they they ran in Abbottabad to try to get samples of the DNA so that they could match it before the the raid took place. This whole story, uh, which we can get from uh, articles like this one from The Guardian uh, in July 2011. CIA organized fake vaccination drive to get Osama bin Laden family DNA. Quote, the CIA organized a fake vaccination program in the town where it believed Osama bin Laden was hiding in an elaborate attempt to obtain DNA from the fugitive al-Qaeda leader's family, a Guardian investigation has found. As part of extensive preparations for the raid that killed bin Laden in May, CIA agents recruited a senior Pakistani doctor to organize the vaccine drive in Abbottabad, even uh, starting the project in a poorer town to make it look more authentic, according to Pakistani and U.S. officials and local residents. The doctor, Shaquille Afridi has since been arrested by the Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, the ISI, for cooperating with American intelligence agents, end quote. So you'll note, I mean, a couple of things about that story, one of which is they don't even say this was, I mean, that they collected Osama bin Laden's DNA as a baseline comparison that they could compare the corpse to. No, it was bin Laden's family. So, I mean, even 
if we were to take this whole story hook, line, and sinker, and, well, they say it's true, so I guess it is, uh, even if that is all true, then still, uh, they were collecting Osama bin Laden family DNA, so people who were related to him, perhaps his children, but that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean that they got Osama bin Laden in Abbottabad. It just means that, look, we've got our DNA. Anyway, again, take this story for what it's worth. But the interesting side effect to all of this was revealed in the National Geographic uh, a couple of years later in 2015. Uh, He led the CIA to bin Laden and unwittingly fueled a vaccine backlash. Quote, Pakistani doctors' role in health campaigns sparked local suspicions that efforts to fight polio were part of a Western plot. The exposure of the CIA's role in the vaccination effort landed Afridi in a Pakistani prison and, health officials say, became a major setback in the efforts to vaccinate Pakistanis against another highly contagious disease, polio. Concerted vaccination efforts had come close to eliminating the crippling virus in the early 2000s, but it had flared up again in 2012 in the cities of Karachi and Peshawar and in the tribal belt along the Afghan border, end quote. So... The the narrative ultimately becomes all of this. Yes, okay, we staged this fake vaccination drive as part of this elaborate plot, but you stupid, silly Pakistani, you backward Pakistanis believing that vaccination is some plot to get you. I mean, come on, yeah, we're staging things and, and setting things up and using it to get your DNA, but don't worry, just shut up and take your shots, <laughs> right? I mean, again, the, even if you take all of this just at face value, the narrative is ridiculous and incredible, but there it is. So anyway, um, that was just an interesting whole sidebar to this entire story, which again, definitively concluded by this leaked budget, which shows that they, yeah, they really did a DNA test and it proved conclusively. All right. Um, But having said that, I mean, even some of the alternative theories that have been offered up as to what did or didn't take place in Abbottabad, I am equally skeptical about, including... Of course, the uh, report from uh, from Seymour Hirsch back in the London Review of Books uh, back in 2015. Again, he came out with The Killing of Osama Bin Laden. The inside story, the dirty details of what really did happen. And it's this elaborate plot, which, yes, they really did get him in Abbottabad. And it really was a Navy SEAL raid. And they really did kill him. But the rest is kind of, you know, political intrigue and and lies and things like that and cover up and what have you. So, yes, it really did happen. And it really was. But but there's some other things. And that's why they can't give you the truth about it. According to Seymour Hersh's inside retired military official sources, which... I'm not even sure why we should take them seriously, even if we did believe they were trying to tell the truth, because why do we think they are definitively in on what did or didn't happen in Abbottabad? But Hirsch always seems to have these inside sources who are believed unquestioningly, um, and I, well, I question. So I don't necessarily, I I certainly don't take that account as definitive, um, and I don't think anyone should, but I'll throw in the link so you can read it through for yourself, The Killing of Osama Bin Laden. So fundamentally... I remain open-minded as to this question of when did Osama bin Laden die? I mean, I, I don't think anyone um, that I know of, although it is sometimes claimed as a sort of straw man, these crazy conspiracy theorists think Osama is still alive. No, I don't, I don't, I don't believe that. I don't know anyone who does. The only question is when did he die? And I put... I think it's most likely he died before May of 2011. I I remain open-minded as to the fundamental, final, conclusive evidence of this. But the point is, give me evidence. 
If you have a theory, if you think that he died in May 2011, or you think he died in December 2001, give me something definitive. Give me evidence. Give me something to go on. That is the decision, the the basis for a decision, and it always should be a point that I've been making since the the time that, that this took place itself. You're not making any sense, Russ. You say I don't buy it, but I'll put up a bet. Okay, you put up a bet. But okay, what's that going to prove? You have nothing. You have nothing to back up your bet with. Time out. I say Obama did it. Obama did what? I say that Obama's... uh, Okay, I'll make a bet that Obama didn't do it. If we go by the original story, the Navy SEALs did it, and Obama didn't do a damn thing. Just sat back and said, okay, I'm going to take the credit for it. That may be. (laughs) But the fellow that you have on is giving all of these uh, other possible options. No, he's not. He's giving what has been reported. Can I step in for a second? Can I step in for a second? Please. I I don't mind. I think... I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying, because I'm not saying that he, he died in 2001 or he died in 2011. I'm saying I don't know, and I'm looking for the proof. So if you have the proof, please provide it to me. I'm thirsting for it. I'm hungering for the proof. Just give it to me. Lay it on me. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I can't provide it. Time out. Time, there's no point in yelling. Time out. Uh, Nobody's yelling. We're wondering where you're quiet. Coming. It's very quiet. We were waiting for you to say something, Rusty. <laughs> That's about that's about it, isn't it? Give me the evidence. No, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe Rusty does work for the U.S. government, but anyway, uh, I'll I'll throw in the link to that full conversation so you can go listen to it in context where I think it's even funnier. But that's that's where it comes down to. Show me the evidence. That's what it's always about, and uh, I don't think we have it in this case. So anyway, I'll let you uh, peruse the uh, the various links that I've uh, pointed out here and come to your own conclusions. I'll also throw in a link to the Osama deception, which I uh, made shortly after the news came out. Uh, trying to throw some of this information together and and throw some questions about uh, what really happened in 2011 and before then. Um, my again, I think that the best evidence would be that he died at some point before 2011. But as I say, I remain open-minded. Um, so convince me otherwise. Uh, the next question again from the mailbag comes from Thomas. Today my, son, uh, today my son had his 16th birthday, and he asked me to invest his gift from his grandmother in some cryptocurrency. Perhaps you could recommend which one to choose, Bitcoin or some less famous one? All right. Thank you for the question, Thomas. Uh, very uh, common and question that I've gotten a lot over the last several months, although not in the last couple of months so much, not since the, uh, the bear market took hold. But anyway, this is a question that's on a lot of people's minds. And... To my mind, to answer this question, what which cryptocurrency should we be investing in? Well, I, I'm assuming that this is a, a birthday present, so it is a couple of things. It is, one, not going to be a huge sum of money that if you lose, oh, it's the end of the world, I would hope. And two, I would hope that this the actual point of this present is not so much the cryptocurrency itself, not the money itself, not the, what is being invested itself, but the process of learning about cryptocurrency. That is, I think, a beautiful gift to be giving to your son, getting involved in the process of, well, what is cryptocurrency and how do I determine which cryptocurrency I should be investing in or, or purchasing and, and what should I be doing with it? These are important questions that are, I think, part of the 
process of the, the birthday present or the, the gift that you're imparting itself. So learning how to set up and secure a wallet and learning about the different exchanges and how they operate and, and learning about the different government regulations that may be applying in your area if you want to uh, play by that game and uh, looking at the price and seeing, well, is there a good time to buy this? Is, is this a dip? Is it going further down? So thinking about those things... Again, even if it's, I mean, anything, but here in the cryptocurrency space, these are the questions that that will be answered as part of the process of this gift, which again, I think is probably more important than the, the monetary value of the gift itself. So, um, so from that perspective, it doesn't really matter which cryptocurrency you and your son end up investing in. It's the process that is the important part. Now, having said that, what crypto should you start with? It depends It depends on the use case for the crypto because there are different use cases for different cryptocurrencies. Bitcoin is now positing itself as the digital store of value gold type cryptocurrency like gold itself, physical gold, which you don't want to you don't want to be trading in on a daily basis. It's, it doesn't make sense for to buy a loaf of bread with, uh, you know, a, a couple of grains of gold. That That's ridiculous. So you, you store gold, you keep gold. It's for, you know, retirement savings kind of thing. Well, Bitcoin is positioning itself that way in the crypto market right now, um, whereas Ethereum is designed for smart contracts, Turing complete, blah, blah, blah. Uh, Zencash is putting itself forward as a secure communication platform as well as uh, secure transactions. Um, Bitcoin Cash, Dash, Monero, they all have different appeals to different markets, uh, low fees or uh, insta- zero confirmation transactions or blah, 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 uh, privacy, security. So um, it again, it depends on what you envision using this for? Um, is it just going to be an investment just to sit there for 50 years or is it something you're gonna be using in some way? Um, that will determine, I think, ultimately which uh, crypto will be the best one. And having said that, why one? Why does it always, why do people think it has to come down to one? No, of course, you can invest in a bunch of different ones. I mean, again, it depends how much money you're playing with here and again how much you can stand to lose <laughs> because whenever you're playing any sort of market game of course you're going to lose some um yeah, well not of course but quite likely and you have to be prepared for that so having said that again why why does it have to all be in one basket there are many different baskets and i'm a big uh, proponent of the idea that com- competition and having different options and diversifying is a good thing. I don't like putting all, all my eggs in one basket. So why buy into the crypto market with just one cryptocurrency and hang your hat on that and make that about everything? So anyway, th- those are the things to think about. But as I say, at the end of the day, I think the educational process of a gift like this is more important than the what the final answer uh, ultimately ends up becoming, if you understand what I'm saying. So anyway, thank you for that question. Thomas, I think that will help. I hope that will help some other people out there that are also looking at thinking about dipping their toes into the crypto markets. Uh, Let's move on to a question from Vance, who writes, my wife and I are learning about JFK and the surrounding details. Can you recommend essential resources on JFK? I thought you had mentioned a book in one of the podcasts. All right. Thank you for the question, Vance. And that's a very vague reference, so I'm not sure, but... Perhaps you're talking about Jim Mars's Crossfire, which I did talk about in my conversation with G. Edward Griffin um, back uh, last last year, 
year and a half ago, uh, a while ago, where we were talking about the JFK myth. JFK was going to end the Fed. No, actually quite the opposite. And uh, we talked about that and busted that myth. And we did, well, I did. Um, I did point the figure, finger at uh, Jim Mars and Crossfire as being the earliest progenitor of this idea that I could find at any rate, and Mars was propounding it in this book. So I think that's a failing of the book. But having said that, as I said at the time, I think that's Crossfire is a, generally a good book filled with a lot of valuable information and eyewitness testimony and other verifiable information. Um, but it's not perfect, obviously. It's not the Bible, and uh, it's not the be-all and end-all of the JFK investigation. So uh, that's kind of the problem with this. There are so many pieces along the, the path that have led over the last, what, 50-plus years now, 55 years, um, to the point we're at now, and there's so much out there that it is overwhelming. And I stand here with you, Vance, um, in the position of looking at 55 years of investigation. Some people have devoted their entire lives to this investigation, and uh, obviously there's just too much material for people who are just starting to dip their toe into even, like, how, where do I even begin? So, um, because, as has been observed, uh, the fool does think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool, I know that I am not an expert in the JFK case. Um, so, whenever I talk to someone about the JFK case, I like to try to ask the question that you're asking. Well, what sources do you go to? What do you recommend? So on that note, you'll remember last year, we did a couple of podcasts about the JFK file dump and what was or was not dumped last year um, as a resu result of the records archive release. And I talked for example, to uh, Chuck Ocelli of the Ocelli Effect podcast at Ocelli.com uh, about his research into that dump and also what sources uh, that he likes to uh, recommend or rely on when he's looking at these types of documents. You have to actually come up with a way to make these things palatable and uh, understood, you know, reading documents, there, there's almost a, a, a mystical science to it, okay, to be able to fully interpret every single thing you see in a document. Um, as, as much as I understand about this, again, guys like John Newman, guys like my co-host Carmine Savastano, guys like, uh, geez, Stu Wexler, Larry Hancock, uh, all these people, by the way, will be at the Lancer Conference not why I'm mentioning them, though. I'm telling you that these are the guys that understand the nuances of these things, understand how the entire uh, infrastructure that, that these documents flowed through was working at the time. And that context is extremely important. And we need to evaluate everything. And I put a similar question to uh, Jacob Hornberger of the Freedom of Future of Freedom Foundation, FFF.org, when I was talking to him about the JFK records release. Well, I think JFKFacts.org is the absolutely best website to keep track of what's going on, especially with the, the release of the files. That's the one that's, that's being run by Jefferson Morley, the former Washington Post reporter, who has just published a great book, a biography of James Jesus Angleton. And uh, then there's another website called KennedysandKing.com that is a great website. Uh, there's another one called Assassination Research something or other. I can't remember the exact name. They're doing some great stuff. So there's a lot of people out there that are saying, hey, it's time to release all these records. Even some of the, the apologists for the CIA are saying, let's release these records. 
And uh, I don't think they, they appreciate the significance of what's going to happen if people see these records, especially on Mexico City. But hey, it's been 50 years, James. The, the idea that these records are being kept secret to protect national security is so patently uh, fake and bogus that it boggles the mind that people are still buying into this. So those are the websites that I'd recommend people to come to, as well as our website, FFF.org, and the several books that we've published on the assassination. One final book I'd recommend everybody to read, which I think is the best introduction to what happened, is JFK and the Unspeakable by a man named James Douglas. Uh, that, that outlines this entire mosaic, this paradigm of a national security state regime change operation better than any book I'm aware of. So I will invite you to go and go back to those show notes for those particular conversations where you can find links to the things talked about and, and other resources to get you started. Um, suffice it to say, yes, it's a huge area and one that invites uh, a lot of exploration. Um, and I'm with you. It can be intimidating just, uh, just dipping your toe in the water. But I should also, of course, recommend Chuck Ocelli's podcast, Ocelli.com, where he does have a JFK Myths series that I think, as I mentioned in my conversation with him, I find valuable for uh, for people who are just getting into this and are overwhelmed and sometimes misled by some of the misinfo and disinfo that's been cast out there over 55 years. And also Jacob Hornberger uh, at FFF.org often writing about these subjects. So um, again, good luck. <laughs> and if you come across any excellent must-read sources, I'm interested to hear about them as well. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, some kind of housekeeping questions. A question from Anthony who writes, hello, could you provide your transcripts to your uh, of your videos, please? And the short answer is no. <laughs> no, I can't because I don't have time to physically transcribe everything that I'm doing. Uh, as always, if people want to transcribe an important interview or something that they think is of value, please do so. But having said that, uh, you might not even need to do so. Um, GooTube, uh, aka YouTube, aka ThemTube, is uh, horrible for many reasons and a platform we should be fleeing. But having said that, of course, the Google algorithms for auto-detecting speech have gotten creepily good over the years. It's something I've noted before, and I will note here again, when this first came out and they had the closed caption thing where you could turn it on and get the automatic tran machine transcription of the uh, of what was being said. Uh, I remember five, six years ago when they started doing that and everyone was laughing at how ridiculously horrible the, the translation was, and it was just gobbledygook, just total nonsense. Um, well, I don't know if you tried it lately, but it's almost perfect now. Uh, it's, again, extremely creepy and just another sign of the machine learning apocalypse we're blindly stumbling into. But hey, at any rate, now everything that gets uploaded to YouTube, or mostly everything anyway, is auto-transcribed and auto-transcribed in a way that's pretty readable. Uh, it doesn't involve punctuation and things like this, and it's not properly formatted, It's of course, but it is, at any rate, understandable and readable. So if you ever do need a transcription for some reason of anything that I've done, just go to the YouTube version of it and there will be a transcription there. Uh, if anyone ever wants to take one of those transcriptions and clean it up, format it properly, to put in the punctuation and everything and send it along, then I'll be happy to post up the transcript to my site. But uh, at any rate, there are transcriptions available. 
Okay, next question in from John, who writes, I would just like you to know that two of your videos relating to Common Core, why Common Core must be opposed, and the answer to Common Core, alternative models of education, have been taken off YouTube. I'm not sure whether this was YouTube's doing, as the message only reads the video is unavailable. Will these videos make it onto BitChute or any other platform outside your site by any chance? Uh, thank you for the question, John. These videos were produced for BoilingFrogsPost.com uh, several years ago as part of my eye-opener series that I was doing for Boiling Frogs Post. Uh, and, well, at any rate, uh, in recent light of recent events, NewsBud.com does not want me to mirror or post any of my Boiling Frogs Post reports anymore, so I have complied with that, uh, that wish. And so those eye-opener reports and those old uh, interviews and other things, roundtables that have been conducted under the Boiling Frogs or NewsBud banner have been removed from my site and are no longer available. So if you would like that material or backups of that material, you'll have to contact NewsBud about that. Um, moving on, we got a question in from Daka Jewea in the comments section of last, uh, the last edition of this series, where he writes, Hi James, I wanted to ask if there is a way to download your videos in high quality 720p without using YouTube. I know that we can download them from your site or BitChute if we want to avoid YouTube, but the quality is low in both cases. While I understand that it's probably to save space or some other technical reason, I was wondering if it is possible. Well, thank you for that uh, question, Dr. Joey. You are right. I do provide the 480p version on my site because, exactly as you say, most people even complain about the size of those files. <laughs> so I don't think we're quite ready in terms of uh, global bandwidth rollout to, uh, to have the 720p versions available. Uh, for everybody. Um, I would consider posting the high quality as well as the low quality versions, but uh, I just don't have time to be doing that with everything that I'm posting. Trust me, it takes an awful lot of time even just to post just a simple video, so uh, I won't be doing that. Um, but I do note that uh, there are sites that allow you to get around the YouTube servers directly, if that's your concern. Uh, I know HookTube, for example, is a an alternative site that is uh, out there that provides um, uh, versions of uh, YouTube videos that you don't have to go to YouTube and it doesn't give YouTube any views or any uh, traffic, um, basically. So it's a way to watch YouTube without watching YouTube. And I think there are other sites like that. So uh, I am not sure if they provide 720p versions of files, but they might. Um, at any rate, that's, that's the answer for now. If there's a huge demand and people really truly desire the 720p files for some reason, they need the 720p, then, uh, and they cannot use YouTube for some reason, then I, I guess maybe I'll post less, but post in every format uh, conceivable, I don't know. But for the time being, I'm providing the 480p versions. All right, uh, next question in from Oscar. Hi, James. On your episode, The Revolution Will Not Be YouTubed, you recommend to your readers, viewers, that if they come across important material, for example, great articles, podcasts, and videos, they then should save it locally to their hard drive so that it can't disappear. This is what I'm currently doing, but the problem is that just saving all those different types of multimedia becomes chaotic to manage without some kind of system when the collection grows. Uh, could you tell me if you have a preferred multimedia database management system or some other kind of system that you use to manage your own collection of important material and keep track of why you saved a particular piece of information in the first place? Okay, excellent. Thank you for the question. Good question, Oscar. The short answer is no. <laughs> I don't have a database, you know, multimedia management system. Uh, I do very 
basic system. I have a folder for audio, a folder for video, and a folder for text articles. And uh, I just save things in there. And for example, within the text article uh, folder, I have uh, folders for different subjects, uh, geopolitics or finance or what have you. Um, but that's the extent of my organization. And I rely on keyword searching in the Finder, which uh, I'm on a Mac. The Finder used to be amazing, incredible, especially coming over from Windows back a decade ago when it, the, it was just ridiculous trying to search for a file. Um, and I came over to Mac and you just type in a keyword and suddenly, oh, there's there's a PDF with that. There's an HTML. There's there's a file name that uh, corresponds to that. It was so good. It's It seems to be getting less like that for me these days. But at any rate, it's still usable. So that's, that's all I'm doing. Um, in terms of fancy database, you know, multimedia management software or something, I know there are different things that exist and pe different people have different methods, but it is really just about habit. And if you were in the habit of doing something a certain way, it's like anything else. I mean, anything that you, you can step into someone's office and it looks like a chaotic mess, but they know exactly where everything is because they do it. So uh, I don't know, whatever works for you is I think ultimately the uh, solution. If you're looking for something more specific, I would suggest asking James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com because I know that he does, I think he burns... DVDs of all the stuff that he, and he downloads everything, and he uh, burns it off onto DVDs every month, and I think he has a monthly archive. Um, but I don't know what kind of, you know, sorting or, or database system he's using to catalog and index that, um, but it might be worth asking. And I'd ask him myself, but I haven't uh, talked to him for the last few weeks because he's been busy moving, and I'm going to be on vacation the next few weeks, so it might be a while before I get to talk to him again. Um, more on the vacation in a moment. Um... Let's just wrap things up with a few more questions. Let's see if we can hit them. Uh, question from Daniel. If one wants to become the new ethical, financial, and economical elites of the future, how should one go about it? What are the ethical ways of making billions of dollars? How much money would I need to save the world? How much money would I need to rule the world? Thank you for the question, Daniel. I think I understand where you're coming from, but I'm going to have to go for an answer here that I, I don't have any links to back this up, I don't have any scholarly treatises. I can only say that uh, money will never save the world. And that line of thinking, that path only leads to damnation of some sort. Um, and I'm not against, I mean, I'm not against the idea of money or profits. I think they are, they serve an important function, but uh, to make it explicitly about that and to believe that salvation awaits if we can just get enough money on our side, uh, I think that is the, the false path. Um, I don't believe there are examples of really ethical billionaires out there. Again, I'm not against the idea of making money, but um, I just don't, I don't believe that there are any players at that level of the game that haven't been compromised in some way. Um, prove me wrong. I mean, you know, Give me examples otherwise, but I, I don't think so. And again, I don't think money itself is the solution. Obviously, it's nice to have resources to combat the resources of those on the uh, the side of evil, but ultimately, I think the most important resources are not monetary in nature. And in fact, the monetary game is a game that was created by the banksters. It is a type of enslavement game that they are playing. And if you buy into it with the money 
idea. It's just if we get enough money, we can win. I think that's exactly what they want to string you along with, because they create the money. That's the game. So it's not about the money at the end of the day. It's about what we can do as individual humans. So uh, uh, it's the One Ring. And the, the great power of the One Ring is that it can convince anyone, oh, if I wear the ring, I can use it for good. Everyone thinks that, and everyone is wrong about it. So that's my take. Uh, don't look for money as the answer. Uh, let's wrap up with a couple more lighthearted questions, <laughs> because that's a pretty deep and dark question to end things on. Let's uh, turn to a question from Robert Hume, who says, off the wall, out of left field question that it is, are you a Flannery O'Connor fan? And I have to say, I only have a vague memory of ever reading one of her stories. I think. And it's a long time ago. I was in university at the time. I, I just, I, for whatever reason, I just never got into Flannery O'Connor, but I'm certainly not adverse to the idea of reading more. So if anyone has any suggestions of where I should start with that, I'm all ears. I'm all eyes. Uh, and let's turn to the final question from Camille, who writes, Hello, James. I cannot find any live version of the Smashing Pumpkins song Love except one from 1989 that has nothing to do with the studio version from the Melancholy album. How come? <laughs> Good question, Camille. I, uh, I think we'll have to ask Billy about that one. I would assume it's because it's maybe a difficult song to reproduce live in an effective way. Although that hasn't stopped them from other attempts at various other live versions of songs. But eh, some songs just don't translate well live. At any rate, I can't really answer why you haven't found that one. But to answer the question you didn't ask, if you are asking about, well, what are some examples of some amazing live performances of Smashing Pumpkin songs? I'll just throw together a handy-dandy playlist for you, and uh, you can peruse for yourself. Because uh, I think it's always been one of the amazing strengths of the Smashing Pumpkins and Billy's imagination that they're able to reinterpret their own works and sometimes come up with even better live versions than what happened in the studio um, as they continue to work and develop and re rethink their songs. So, anyway... Just a little bit of fun to end things on. Uh, and as I said, as I alluded to earlier, I am going on vacation for the next few weeks with my family. So for the next few weeks, I will still be posting to CorbettReport.com. Believe it or not, I am a workaholic. I will still post, at least occasionally, to the site and keep things uh, rolling along. But it will obviously be a much reduced posting schedule over the next few weeks. What could possibly happen while I'm away, right? That could possibly demand my attention. Well, hopefully... Hopefully the world will pause while I'm away. But at any rate, uh, I won't be here posting on a daily basis for the next few weeks. So um, bear with me uh, as me and my family go on vacation. Uh, as I say, there will still be stuff rolling out through the feed. So please do subscribe to the, uh, the RSS feeds or the e daily email list. And you will stay up to date with whatever is being posted to the site. And until then... And until next time, that's it for today. As always, get your questions in by the contact form or members log in and leave your questions in the comments for this edition of the podcast. I'm your host, as always, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. Looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. The Corbett Report is brought to you by the Data DVD series. From 2007 to 2016, each set of Data DVDs contains every podcast, every article, every video, and every interview from that year of the website. Celebrate the Corbett Report's decade of alternative media dominance by owning it all, only on these Data DVDs. For more information, please go to corbettreport.com slash data DVD.